0: I'm a big fan of cooking and baking, right? You guys, some of you guys know this. One of my favorite sources to collect recipes in baking and stuff like that is, um, is Buzz, BuzzFeed's recipe domain called Tasty. Tasty is known for kind of like short 30 second to one minute videos that show you how to make a tasty and creative dish, okay? Anywhere from chicken enchiladas to, you know, cinnamon roll pancakes or something like that, okay? But every once in a while, what, what Tasty will do is it will give you a quiz, okay? And this quiz usually takes you about 10, uh, gives you about 10 or 15 questions. And with each question, it only gives you two options to choose from, okay? So it says like, you know, choose this or that. Would you rather eat this dish or this dish? And this, you know, maybe this dessert or this dessert or something like that. And they're just kind of like fun little quizzes that force you to make a choice between two options, all right? Well, I found a quiz I want to share with you this morning. And it's a very appropriate one, especially just after doing this whole, you know, <laughs> doing this whole Family Feud cereal thing. Um, and so this, this quiz is called Would You Rather Cereal Edition, okay? Would you rather eat this cereal or this cereal, all right? And you only get two options. You only get two options. So I want you all to, to all to participate in this quiz with me. And I'll read the question in each, each of your two choices. Then I'll have you raise your hand to choose which one would you, you would rather eat, okay? After I collect your choices for each question, we'll look at some results to see what others would rather eat, okay? So, let's see. What's our first one? Would you rather start your day with a bowl of Cinnamon Toast Crunch or Golden grams? Mm-hmm. So, what about Cinnamon Toast Crunch? Raise your hand. Golden grams. All right. What about Golden grams? Raise your hand. Oh, that's pretty dead even. That's crazy. What do what, what do they say out there? Let's see. Simmantos they say seventy five percent say toast Crunch, twenty five percent say Golden Grams. Okay, so I like Semitose Crunch. That's what I would choose. Would you? Would you? Which? What bowl would you pour for a midnight snack? Tricks or Reese's Puffs? Okay, tricks or Reese's Puffs. Uh, How about tricks? I've never had Reese's so. Reese's Puffs. Think, I've never had those. Yeah, I can't remember which one I chose, but I think I probably chose tricks. Fifty-eight percent says Reese's Puffs. Puffs. You know my brother would love that too. I love it. It's Puffs. crazy, huh? He loves. Which chocolatey cereal oh, do you uh, would prefer? Oh, yeah. Cocoa Puffs or Cocoa Pebbles? What about Pebbles? They're all good. I have Pebbles better. <laughs> texture better. Cocoa Puffs. They're too country. You only get one choice here, so you can't choose both. Right? That's the way this I have works. I texture cocoa. I'm the only one. I chose. I think Cocoa Puffs. Sixty-four yeah, percent. Yeah, I have the for cocoa. I feel like the Cocoa Pebbles. The Texture's way better. All right, which is your favorite fruit of cereal, Fruit Loops or Fruity Pebbles? Fruity Pebbles. Fruity, fruit Loops? Raise your hand. And for Fruity, Fruity Pebbles. Pebbles. Raise your hand. Wow, lots of Fruity really? Pebbles. Really? <laughs> you guys are sick. <laughs> <laughs> no. yes. to 38. What? Fruity Pebbles. I think great. I chose Fruity Pebbles Fruity too, Pebbles actually. Pebbles are harder to that. That's hilarious. <laughs> which of these simple cereals do you prefer, Rice Krispies or Cheerios? <laughs> Cheerios? A couple of you guys? All right. Rice Krispies? Oh, sorry, I already gave you Oh, wait, what? Oh. Most people what say Rice Krispies, was... so Rice Krispies, most people say Cheerios though, apparently. So... Wow. But being, being, keep in mind, adults are probably taking this quiz, okay? So, uh, I don't know. People, I, don't I don't know why feel... people like Cheerios, it's really weird to me. Which of these sugary, yellow cereals do you like best? Corn pops or honeycomb? I corn I don't pops? Don't I, 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 pops? I didn't eat any of them. So what? I'm just gonna take corn. Alright. How about honeycomb? Alright. I guarantee you honeycomb's <laughs> better, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Corn Pops <laughs> is more popular. I, I've so. never eaten any, so... Which of these healthier cereals is your favorite? Special K or Honey Bunch of the Votes? How about Special K? Anyone had that before? No? I don't know what that is. Honey Bunch of the Votes? Yeah. that's much better. And so says the world. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> Which classic cereal do you like best? Corn Flakes? Corn okay. Flakes. Wheaties. I like, wheat. I like Wheaties. I like too. Wheaties. I don't, I don't know. If there's Wheaties. Wheaties are better. Which Frosted cereal is better? Frosted Wheaties. Flakes or Wheaties. Frosted Mini Wheats? Frosted, flakes. Flakes. frosted, frosted flakes. flakes. Yeah. Wow, yeah. That's that's definitely mine, too. No, no, frosted no. It's all Mini, mini wheats. wheats. All right. Mini Wheats all the way. Noah likes Mini Wheats. <laughs> it's okay. Most people say Frosted <laughs> <laughs> Mini Wheats are down. Which of these super sweet cereals is better? Captain Crunch or Lucky Charms? Like Captain Crunch. Crunch? Wow, lucky yeah. charms. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. a pretty standard for most people, I think. So. Well, Why is it always like yeah, yeah, at at the two people. numbers Life. combined? Life. Which square Life. cereal better. is better? Life? Life? Life is better. What about checks? Anyone for checks? All right. That's kind of even there. All right, so I bet you there were probably a few questions in there you wish you had another option available, right? Like, man, if only I had that one. You know, like, why wasn't Captain Crunch a part of the sugary yellow cereal one? But, you oh, well, I would have voted for that. But you only had two options with each question. And Tasty's quiz is a reflection of kind of some moments in life like that. Uh, just like this quiz, there are moments when you're only given two options. A choice between one thing or another thing. And as we've been exploring the, the doctrine of justification, we've had to do do so from the inside of a courtroom, right? We've been talking about justification that it has to do with declaring someone right in the eyes of the law. And in the case of biblical justification, we're looking to figure out how we can be declared right in God's eyes. But like all courtroom proceedings and like each and every trial, there's only two types of verdicts. There's either guilty or there's not guilty. There's no in-between. There's no like middle ground or anything like that. There's no halfway guilty. There's no 75% guilty. It's always guilty or not guilty. That's just the way it is. That's, that's the way verdicts work in a courtroom, and that's the way it works for justification. Even when a jury can't decide whether, whether to convict someone uh, as guilty or give them the sentence not guilty, the case never stops. You know, It might take a long recess or move to a mistrial or something like that, and the court may need to bring in a whole new jury to s- decide the case. But the, the, the trial goes on. It just keeps going on and on and on until you reach a verdict. And each one of you has a verdict before God. We've talked about this. And there's only two options. It's either guilty or it's not guilty. There's no in between. There's no middle ground. You know, for example, there's no such thing as purgatory. No such thing as purgatory. There, you know, as the Catholics would say, which is a place where you, um, you don't actually go to hell for being bad. You go to a lesser kind of version of hell called purgatory where there's a lessened form of punishment for a short period of time until you can kind of pay for your sins and then, you know, make your way up into heaven and things like that. There's no such thing. That's because either you're guilty or you're not guilty. So you either go to heaven forever Or you go to hell forever. There's no in-between. And I left you last time with a lingering question. What's the difference between someone who's guilty and someone who's not guilty? How does God decide which one's right and which one's declared wrong? What criteria does he use? What does he measure by and and how does he apply that standard? That's the question I want to uh, ask you guys this morning. This is the critical question for each one of you. We know that justification is an act of God. We know it's his work and it's unlimited in power. It's unaccompanied by you and it's undeniably proven to work. We know that. We know that justification is an act of God to declare you right. Somehow, some way, God works on your behalf and he declares you not guilty. And he does so through imputation, substitution, and union. We talked about this last time, uh, last, yesterday morning imputation god imputes or credits or gives you christ's righteousness and christ our sinfulness substitution god allows christ to switch places with us and union which is the whole reason why imputation and substitution works is that christ is eligible to be the perfect representative for you and so but as glorious as all this sounds it's not for everybody not everyone gets to be saved. Not everyone is who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not the way it works. So not everyone's going to hear these relieving words, not guilty. What's the final determining factor for who's in and who's out? That's what we want to look at this morning. And the answer to our question comes as the last part of our definition, okay? Justification's an act of God to declare you right through faith. Through faith. That's what makes the difference. It's through faith. That's what separates the not guilty from the guilty. The declared right from the declared wrong. The Christian from the non-Christian. Those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. It's faith. That's it. There's nothing more that needs to be added to this. It's just faith. That's, there's no like exception to this rule whatsoever. No footnote at the bottom. There's, there's, there are no works involved or anything like that. No extra chores or tasks that you have to do. No activities. It's just faith. It's just faith. Salvation is not based on anything you do. It's actually the opposite. It's based solely on your faith, which quite simply is this. You're admitting that you can't do it, but that God can. And that you didn't do it, but that God did. That's faith. That's all it takes to be justified. And it it sounds really too good to be true, but that's the truth. That's the whole truth, and that's nothing but the truth. And that's the only way you're going to hear from the jury, not guilty. Not guilty. So what does it mean to have faith? What does this look like? What what actually is faith? What are the characteristics of it? Well, I want to look at a passage this morning in Luke chapter 7 to see this, okay? Luke chapter 7. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. And let's go ahead and read this story because by the end of the story, you're going to see two characters, two primary characters besides Jesus. And one of them is going to be considered not guilty and the other one's going to be guilty. Okay? So Luke chapter 7, verse 36 is where we're going to be looking. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, "Uh, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will he love more? Simon answered and said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You can see that at the end of the story here, Jesus pronounces the woman woman, not guilty. Her sins are forgiven, and her faith has saved her. She leaves in peace. It's not actually said here, but since the woman and Simon the Pharisee are so different... The assumption is Simon is pronounced guilty. Simon's the guilty one here. So what's the difference between them? The difference is all in their attitude. The way the woman treats Jesus is diametrically opposed to the way Simon, the Pharisee, treats Jesus. So let's start with the woman. Who's who's declared not... uh, Sorry, the woman who's declared not guilty, and then we're going to wrap up with Simon who's declared guilty, okay? So the attitude of faith of the not guilty... Is this? It's faith. It's faith. The attitude of the not guilty is faith. And you know, take a look back at verse fifty. It says, "Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you." That's what saved her. That's the fundamental difference. Simon didn't have faith, but the woman did. What would what did faith look like, though? Well, let's look at three characteristics. One, faith is humble. Faith is humble. If you kind of rewind back to verse 38 in our story, it says that she was standing behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. Raise your hand if feet ever gross you out. Does, does feet ever gross people out? A few of you guys, okay? Some people get really grossed out with feet. Um, it's, it, it's true, like, it happens. When I was a toddler, my sister used to stick her feet in my face and make me smell them, and, and, and tell, tell her that they smelled like roses. It was really gross, but I don't know why she made me do that, but I did. So, there's actually like a foot phobia out there called podophobia. Some people like are scared of feet and stuff like that. This woman is actually the opposite. She's like crazy nuts about Jesus' feet for some reason. She, you know, starts crying over his feet and wetting his feet with, with her tears and stuff like that. And then she wipes it with her hair and everything. It's like... This woman's crazy. Should we be calling like the men in white to come pick her up or something like that? She's, she's a little strange, right? Well, who is this woman? What, what, what is she about? We know a couple things. One, she's a sinner that was well known in the city. She was very well known for being a sinner. We don't know what that sin is. Could be something like prostitution, but it's just, it's, she's really a really bad person. The second thing we know is she's not crazy. She's not crazy. Even though she looks like it, she's not Back in those days, it was common for the lowest servants, the ones at the, on the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak, to wash the feet of guests in people's homes. They were, that's what they were supposed to do. That was normal. The world that Jesus lived in was dusty and dry, kind of like Bakersfield is. And they didn't have like, you know, shoes to wear, so they had sandals, so their feet got really dirty all the time. And so they had servants that would wash their feet every single day. And now this woman wasn't a servant, but she was just kind of in the house while Jesus was, was eating. And so Jesus had kind of traveled in. Simon had invited him in to eat lunch. And the way Jesus worked is that he had crowds that followed him everywhere, right? And so crowds would actually gather around the, the, the dinner table and watch Jesus eat. It was kind of creepy, but it just kind of, that's the way it worked. And so you just came to expect that if you invited Jesus over to your house. And so people, you know, you'd eat and other people would eat with you and, People would be watching around, listening in on the conversation. This woman was probably one in the crowd. And she sees an opportunity because no one had washed Jesus' feet yet. No one had washed his feet before dinner had started. And so she jumps in and she starts washing his feet. But she washes it with her tears in her hair. That's kind of weird, right? Why would you do that? Because there's no water around. There's no water to wash his feet. No one had set it aside to be able to wash his feet. So what does she do? She improvises. And she starts crying to create water. And they're probably real tears. I mean, she's probably moved to tears because Jesus is in her presence. But but she creates her own water with her tears and gets his feet wet, and then she doesn't have a towel around so she takes her hair and dries it. So you can kind of see she's not crazy. She's actually brilliant she there's no there's no one there to wash his feet there's no water to wash his feet with the, there, there's no sinks back then that she could just you know pour water in you had to go down to the local well and pull up water and bring it all the way over there she couldn't do that she didn't have time to do that and so she improvises here and what this woman does is so impressive, impressive here and it gives us a window into the nature of saving faith her faith was humble it was humble She was willing to do whatever it takes to get his feet washed and honor him in this way, even to the point of stooping to the lowest servant, the lowest servant. These servants were not highly regarded at all. They were the outcasts. They were, you just basically washed feet because you were the worst person in society. She's like, I don't care if I make myself look like that. I'm going to be near Jesus. That's what I'm going to do because he is my savior. That was her attitude. That's faith. It's humble. A faith that justifies you isn't at the front of the line. It's at the back of the line. It isn't promoting yourself. It's demoting yourself. It isn't elevating your greatness. It's elevating Christ's greatness. That's true faith. If you're wondering to yourself, how do I know God has justified me? Well, let me ask you this. Are you humble? Are you humble? Have you humbled yourself? Have you recognized yourself to be a sinner? Have you ever come to the end of yourself at some point in your life? Have you ever been broken over your sin? The pathway to justification is through the forest of unending tears. That is true faith. It's humble. It's humble. And how is it possible for God to declare you right through his work of imputation, substitution, union with Christ, all of that, if you you make your salvation based on your own effort and greatness? It doesn't work that way. You must be humble. You must be humble. That's genuine faith. And that's a faith that saves. That's a faith that justifies. Second, though, her faith is affectionate. Her faith is affectionate. Return to verse 38. Look at verse 38 again. Look what it says. It says kind of halfway down the verse here that not only did did she cry over Jesus' feet and wipe them with her hair, she also kissed his feet. She kissed his feet. And once again, this kind of sounds really weird, right? I mean, like, why would you kiss someone's feet? That's kind of bizarre. Back in that culture, kissing was common. And it was common among friends. Uh, it wasn't just like a romantic gesture or something like that. It was actually just something people did to greet each other. First uh, Thessalonians 5.26, greet, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. It's weird, but it's truly totally happened. First Peter 5.14, greet one another with a kiss of love. That's so the way they did it. Same thing in Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, and Second Corinthians 13, 12. It just happened all over the place. And get this, Judas kissed Jesus. That's weird. That's really weird. But that's the way it worked back then. You did that as, they, the, the, the thing that I, you know, try to equivalent with, um, it, it's the, the, the greatest thing that I would um, make it equal to in our culture is, uh, is hugging. It's like hugging. You know, it doesn't have to be remor- romantic or weird. You know, you hug someone when you're, when you're uh, really close to them. Even if it's, like, guy to guy and girl to girl. It's, it's normal, right? You just, you hug each other when you really care about someone. That's what kissing was back then. They would either, you know, like, kiss on the cheek or something like that. that that's what that is. It's not gross so much back then, although it's gross in our culture because we're just not that affectionate, so. But that's just the way it is. So what's she doing here? She's, she's, she's kissing Jesus' feet, Okay and it's it 's to show it, it 's not disgusting necessarily or romantic it 's just a little out of place because it 's just weird to see someone actually kissing someone 's feet right so but this is showing that ge sorry that this woman is more than just humble she 's also affectionate, she has an f- affection for jesus she she recognizes that she can have a personal relationship with God, and she wants that relationship, and so she does whatever she can to imitate the, uh, sorry, to express her desires for that, for that um, relationship. You know, it, and that's the way the nature of saving faith is. It goes beyond humility and it boldly seeks to have a personal relationship with God. It's not just concerned with the facts of the gospel, although it is, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's not, you know, there's an emotional side to this. And even though emotion's not everything in our faith, it is a big part of it. Have, if you've ever, have you ever been broken over your sins? Have you ever been overjoyed by the cross, elated by his resurrection, pierced through your soul by the weight of who God is, encouraged and revived by the truth of scripture, burdened with a desire to live for Christ, proclaim Christ and worship Christ? Have you ever longed for heaven? Those are all emotions. That's affection. You need to have that as a part of your faith. That's important, Okay. So because someone who's justified through faith has a personal relationship with God, um, that's an important part. You need to have that particular quality of faith. It's an affectionate faith. And even though there may be times in your life when your emotions grow cold and your heart feels indifferent toward God, he always finds a way to break up the hard soil that cakes up and calcifies around your heart. He always does. And that's, that's the way we need to be. We need to be responsive to the spirit working in our hearts in that way. So someone who's been justified by faith is overwhelmed by the gospel, that his sins have been imputed to Jesus, and that, and that, is, that Jesus is substituted in his place, that there's a union with Christ, and that faith is genuine and it's affectionate. Okay? But third, faith is also committed. It's also committed. Verse 38 says again, Uh, that she also anointed his feet with perfume, with, with like an oil, like an ointment. This woman actually knows no boundaries here. With every action that she takes on Jesus' feet, she only gets bolder and bolder. And this is the boldest move in my mind that she makes. Okay? At this particular point, I mean, it's one thing that she washed his feet with her tears, and dried it with her hair, that showed humility. You know, it's another thing that she kissed his feet to show affection, but now she anoints his feet with perfume, and this is gutsy. This is really gutsy. The perfume she anointed his feet with wasn't just an ordinary perfume. If you go down to local JCPenney, you can pick up a bottle of perfume, nice perfume for like 100 to $150. Nice perfume, okay? But here's the thing, that, that sounds expensive to you, but this bottle of perfume was expansive. It was expansive, okay? It was, I mean, it was 300 denarii. Oh, you don't know what denarii is. You need to know what denarii is. A denarii is a day's wage. It's a day's wage, okay? Think of how much money you make in a day. Well, most people make about $160 in a day, okay? And so if you multiply 300 denarii, 300 days wage, 300 times 160, what do you get? $48,000, This perfume bottle was worth $48,000. That's like a year's worth of work for most people. That's expensive. And what does she do? She dumps it on Jesus' feet. $48,000 down the drain, just like that. That's amazing, right? That's impressive. That's a lot of money. But she uses all of that to, 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 to do it. That's a bold move. I mean, Can you imagine if you're one of the people in the crowd watching this, you see that bottle of perfume and you know it's expensive and she dumps it all over Jesus's feet. I mean, that would be crazy, right? They knew what that jar was and they must've been like, no, no. Like that's crazy. The shock, the horror, right? Who would do that? It's like shredding $50,000, like right before someone's eyes. Like, it's like, why would you do that? At least like, you know, you could, you could go and you could buy, like, a Lexus with that, right? You know, like, it'd be really nice. Or you could at least sell the money and give it to the poor, give it to the temple or something like that. But this lady decides to dump it all over Jesus' feet. And why does she do that? You have to realize this is this one woman shot with Jesus. This is her only moment with the God of the universe in human flesh right before. And she's not going to miss out on this opportunity. She's going to take every cent that she has and gives it to Jesus in that moment and says, I am this committed to you. I'm this committed to you. I'm going to give you everything that I own. This, this was probably something that she gained through her sin. She probably earned that money through doing some type of sinful act. But she takes all that and she says, I hand it over to you. All of my sin, everything that I've done, it's given to you. And even though it cost me so much, I don't care. I don't care because I want Jesus to be my savior. I don't care how much money I can gain in the world. I want Jesus. So it sounds crazy, but honestly, it's the choice. It's the best choice that she ever made in her entire life. That was the best choice. This shows how committed she is. She's willing to follow Jesus to the point of sacrificing everything she owns. And that too is the nature of saving faith. It's all in. It's not fickle. It's not half-hearted. It sells out for Christ. And just like there's only two verdicts, guilty or not guilty, there's only two choices. There's either serve Christ with all of your heart or deny him. That's it. There's no middle ground. Just like Steve talk, Pastor Steve talked about last night, there's no middle ground. You either hate Christ or you love Christ. And even though you might think, well, I feel like I'm middle ground. You're not. Being middle ground is choosing to stand against Christ. Are you all in or all you are, are you all out? And so this anonymous woman shows a humble, affectionate, committed faith. And what does she get in return? What does she get in return for her faith? Look at verse 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's what she gets for her, for her, for her faith. Remember, guys, last night? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's what she got. She got that peace. But there's another character in the story, and that is the Simon the Pharisee. And this is the attitude of the guilty, and it's self-righteousness. What is the opposite of faith here? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is thinking you're inherently righteous and you don't need any saving. You bring good to the table already and there's no need for someone to step in and give you any grace. But what does self-righteousness actually look like and how does Simon show that self-righteousness? Well, first of all, we learned that his self-righteousness is haughty, haughty. Haughty is another word for pride, okay? It's pride, it's proud, it's arrogance, haughty, self-righteousness is haughty. So verse 44 says, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus contrasts the actions of the woman to the the lack of action that Simon took for Jesus. He didn't wash Jesus' feet. He should have. That was his job. He's the the guy in the house. He should have at least gotten a servant to wash his feet, but he didn't do that. He didn't do his job. And Simon actually should have been the one who washed Jesus' feet because Jesus is the the king of the universe, right? Simon should have been willing to stoop himself to do that. But he wasn't even willing to let one of his servants do that. And so he's haughty. He's arrogant. He doesn't think Jesus is that great. He's just kind of like, oh, just come over for lunch and we'll just kind of hang out. He's haughty. He's arrogant. He's proud. And and so that's what we see in verse 39. We see that attitude kind of showing up. Look at verse 39. Verse 39. It says, now when this Pharisee Simon who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who who and what sort of woman this this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. He he, he doesn't think Jesus is a prophet. He doesn't even think Jesus is is that great of a guy because if he was, he would have seen how bad this woman is and he wouldn't have associated with her. Well, Simon thinks that. But here's the irony of it all. If Simon was a true believer, he would have known who Jesus is, Jesus is and what kind of person Jesus, Jesus is who's reclining with him because he's the Messiah. That's really the key. He should have compared himself with Jesus and, and not with this woman. And he should have recognized who, who just walked into his home, who's eating a bite of dinner with him. So his, his, his self-righteousness is, is haughty. Second, his self-righteousness is indifferent. It's indifferent. And it says in verse 34, you gave me no kiss. He didn't, he didn't give any kiss to Jesus. He didn't welcome him like a friend. He didn't have a personal relationship with him. And verse 40 kind of gives us this parable, this story about a certain money lender. Someone, there are two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, one owed 50, and they both got their debts removed. And the question is, which one would, would love the person who forgave the debts? Who, who would love him more? If you if you owed like seventy five thousand dollars or seventy five hundred dollars, um, and both debts, got, both debts got removed, which debt would you be more grateful that was gone? Seventy five thousand dollars, right? Because that's more expensive, right? Well, the person who loses who gets that debt removed, the higher debt, is going to be more grateful. This woman had a greater debt in a sense; she was a sinner, and so she was more grateful. Simon didn't have as big as a debt. And he wasn't as grateful, but he should have been grateful. He should have been, he should have had an affection for Jesus because Jesus is here to take away his sins. So he didn't recognize this. He didn't recognize what was going on, what Jesus was doing with this woman. And so he totally blew it. And so, so Simon gets, he gets the question right. He answers the question correctly that Jesus asks him. He says, I suppose for the, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Look at verse, um, let's see, what verse is that? Verse, verse 43, he says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Notice the words, I suppose. Do you guys think it's, it's hard to answer this question, which one would be more grateful for, for the debt that was removed? It's not a hard question, right? You guys answered it already, right? It's an easy one. Why is Simon saying, I suppose? Like, it's an easy answer. But he's saying, I suppose, he's doubting. He's doubting. Why is he doubting? There's a reason here. It's because there's a, ring of, there's a ring of doubt in his voice, and it's because Simon's doing this because he's trying to be rational. He's trying to be rational. He's trying not to throw any emotion into this whatsoever. He's afraid he's going to get the question wrong, and out of fear that he's going to get it wrong, he doesn't want to make like... Um, he doesn't want to make it look like he's, a, he's, he's really bad or anything like that. So he kind of gives himself a back door. And he's like, well, I suppose it's this one, but maybe it might be this one. And, you know, I want to kind of give myself both options in case I'm wrong so I don't look so bad. See what he's doing here? He's trying not to look so bad. He's trying not to put any emotion in this whatsoever. So he's just trying to give like an educated guess. But he's missing the point. He's just trying to save face. That's all he's trying to do. He's more concerned about himself. He's not concerned about stooping himself to, to actually have a relationship with Jesus. The woman was willing to. The woman was willing to, to take the form of a servant and wash his feet. He wasn't. He wasn't whatsoever. So Jesus is trying to get him to see something else, that he, that he can't come to Christ objectively. He can't come to Christ rationally. He must come with full emotion. He must come with with an affection for Christ. He can't come as like a, a rational person who decides whether Christ is good or not. He can't do that. He needs to come with all of his emotion, with all of his affection. He must break himself of his pride. He needs to humble himself, but he's refusing to. Simon wants to get saved by his own rational intellect, and he doesn't want to get embarrassed. So he was cold, he was calculating, he was indifferent because he was self-righteous. But Jesus indicates that the pathway to justification is through a bit of embarrassment. It's through a bit of embarrassment. You must be willing to embarrass yourself a little bit for Christ. Be willing to come and kiss his feet. Make yourself look a little bit like a fool because he's worth it. He's totally worth it. You've got to you strip yourself of your pride and your self-righteousness. You've got to stop being indifferent and uncaring. You've got to abandon your self-image and, and come and kiss Jesus' feet. As weird as it may, may look, make you look. Because that's an exercise of true faith. Therein lies the pathway to justification. But third, his self-righteousness is dismissive. It's dismissive. Jesus said, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So he didn't anoint her, his, her uh, feet with oil, or his feet with oil. Um, he, uh, he, didn't, he wasn't willing to sacrifice anything. She sacrificed everything, right? $48,000 worth of, of oil down the drain. Simon didn't sacrifice anything, nothing at all. And, and it kind of shows in his attitude in verse 49, when he and the others say, who is this who even forgives sins? He's like, who is Who does this guy think he is? He forgives other people's sins? What, is he God or something? Yeah, exactly. He's totally missing the point. He is God. He can forgive sins. This guy's totally missing it. He's just, he's dismissive. He's dismissing Jesus. He's saying he's not that great. He's not that great of a guy. He can't really do anything. He shouldn't be forgiving sins. And so he's not willing to be committed to this, to to Christ at all. He's not committed at all. He's he's anti-committed. He's committed to the opposite side. That's not faith at all. And I tell you what, that's, that's kind of the way our world works today. The world loves to invite Jesus into their houses, they, and they love to, to talk about Jesus and to, to say, oh, he makes me feel all good inside and stuff like that, but they're not committed to him. They're not willing to go all the way. They're not willing to sell everything. They're, 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 they only go so far. But Jesus says, are you fully committed? That's true faith. Instead, this guy says, no, I have self-righteousness. So what is faith? Faith is humble. Faith is affectionate. Faith is committed. It's not haughty. It's not indifferent. It's not dismissive. That's self-righteousness. That's the opposite of faith. And you know, I showed you the, the tasty quiz, right, for the cereal. That's not the only place where you can find a quiz that has two options, The Bible has one, too. You can find it in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and something else. You can fill in the blank with whatever you want there. You have a choice, but you only get two options. You either can hate and despise God, and and love and be devoted to yourself, or you can hate and despise everything else in order to love and devote yourself to God. There's no middle ground. There's no in between. It's either God or it's something else, and that something else is going to condemn you to hell. That's the way it works. Faith admits it's God who declares me right. I never can. I never could. therefore, it's humble, it's affectionate, and it's committed. Justification is an act of God to declare you right, but it's through faith. It's only through faith. You have the chance of a lifetime before you. If you haven't already committed yourself to Christ in faith, then this is your chance. This is your opportunity. You can try to earn a pardon by your own effort, but it's never going to work. You're never going to be successful. Or, you can let God do all the work through Christ. So when the, dabble, the, sorry, when the gavel comes down on the block and your sentence is read, I'm curious, what, what are you going to hear? What are you going to hear? Are you going to hear guilty? Or are you going to hear the wonderful words because Christ stands in your place, not guilty? Father, we thank you so much that we've had this opportunity to explore justification and I pray, Father, that you would grant those in this room who do not know you to have faith, true faith, that is entirely affectionate, committed, and that is, it is willing to be humble and, and to submit, submit ourselves to the cross, submit ourselves to your work and your work alone, that you justify us, you declare us right, you say that we are righteous And it's all because of what Christ has done for us. May we believe that with all of our hearts because there is no other way of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. There is no one who comes to the Father but through me. There is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved except Jesus's. I pray, Father, that we will have faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, bless our time in small groups and the rest of our time in camp. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.